But Lord and our God, we praise you for who you are, and we thank you for your mercies that are new every day. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that not a single hair can fall from our head apart from your sovereign will. We thank you that you do all things well, that you do all things for your glory, and that you do all things for our good. Uh, we admit, O oh Lord, that there are times in this life when we experience great joys, and certainly coming to camp uh, is one of those great joys. We admit as well that there are other times in our lives when we find your providence hard to swallow. And we ask, O oh Lord, for a great faith. We think of the disciples who themselves said, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Uh, we pray this week that as we contemplate the subject of evangelism, uh, Lord, we believe. Uh, we believe this is something that you've called your church to do. And yet at the same time, O oh Lord, we confess at times our weakness, our frightfulness, or simply our unbelief that you will work not only in us, but through us. We ask, Lord, that at the end of this week, we would be not only better knit to one another in love, we pray, Lord, that ultimately our hearts would be even more knit to your own, that we would so love our precious Savior and his work for us, that we would love the idea of telling others about the great, great story of King Jesus and his love for sinners that drove him to the cross into the grave, but he's triumphed now in the resurrection. So Lord, help us now to turn our thoughts and attention to you and to your word. And Lord, might the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Exodus 18. If you don't have a Bible, you should be beaten appropriately. I'm one of those guys. I'm prone to what I'll go ahead and acknowledge is a bit of a colorful humor. So uh, I would like you to, uh, if you've got uh, this kind of a Bible, which is to say the right one, let me hear the pages turning. That's a good sound for me. See, if you're reading from one of those, you know, small TVs with an identity crisis, they don't count. Okay? So... I wish everyone had Bibles like this. I'm, I'm just one of those guys, I refuse to read on an eye gadget. so if that makes you think I'm 550 years old, it's okay, I'm really all right with it. I like holding books. I think that's a wonderful sound. Uh, I, I refer to this as a white noise, and uh, just one thing I should tell you about myself is I'm, I'm mixed racially. Uh, my dad's black and American Indian or Native American or indigenous American, whichever phrase you prefer. Uh, so I'm pretty comfortable saying almost anything. And so uh, one of my favorite jokes I'll start off with is, do you know what they call this white noise? Mark, this is for you. You know what they call this white noise? Because it has no rhythm. <laughs> that, that'll come, I'll pay for that one before the week is over, but... Uh, so it begins. All right. So I want you in your Bibles to uh, open to Exodus 18:11. What's your custom here? A lot of things I don't know. Like, do you usually stand for a Bible reading? What do, what do you do? You sit? I'm going to ask you to stand. So if you don't want to stand, you don't have to stand. But standing is good. I've been sitting for 120 hours. So uh, standing, is, uh, standing is a real good thing. So let's hear God's word from Exodus 18. Uh, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for the people of Israel, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. 
Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and with his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went with him to the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And thus far the reading of God's word. Please be seated. So I appreciate you being so kind to me as to do that. Preachers are kind of like baseball players. I'm not really much of a baseball player, but I know like two or three things. One of them is I know that they're fairly habitual in the things they do just before a game. They put on their socks in a certain order. They have lucky equipment, things like that. Uh, They get used to certain rhythms. And at least in our church, we typically stand for the reading of the word. And so what I find is when I go somewhere and preach, if if I don't stand people just before I preach, I feel like I'm leaning like to the left, obviously, the whole time uh, that I'm preaching, and it just makes me feel a little bit better to stand up and give our visible reverence for God's Word. Uh, so what I want to do tonight is try to set a stage for what we're going to be talking about the rest of this week, which is the subject of evangelism, uh, but begin it by just setting the idea that evangelism uh, is something that we do for the glory of God, and it's one of the most important things that the church does. Now, I'll tell you just a little uh, nerdy story by way of an introduction. Uh, My son, uh, Carl, who's back there, his middle name is Voss. Uh, He's named after an old dead Dutch guy that taught at Princeton named Gerhardus Voss. You know you're kind of nerdy when you name your kids after Dutch theologians and you're not even remarkably Dutch yourself, not even a drop. Uh, So Carl is named after this fellow who I uh, discovered in seminary and really fell in love with. And uh, he was a teacher back at Princeton. How many of you heard the name J. Gresham Machen? Just about everybody has, right? Well, by the end of this week, you'll know him pretty well, and I I hope you'll love him uh, just about as much. And so uh, Machen was a student at Princeton a long, long time ago, and while he was preaching an early uh, sermon as a student, uh, he said this. Now, make sure you capture this. This It's going to be like something I want you to wrestle with through the week. Uh, Machen said in his sermon, Machen, you know, of course, was Uh, would become later one of the founders, if we can use that language, of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Really significant figure for us, right? And Machen said in his sermon that the most important thing the church does is, what would you say? Well, Machen's answer was evangelism. His answer is that the most important things, this is what he said in the sermon, uh, the very most important thing that the church does as the body of Christ is evangelism. 
And then in this little handwritten sermon, I found in a dusty little archive at the bottom of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. It says over in a different colored handwritten ink, Dr. Voss disagreed with me. And I thought, well, this is fantastic. This is like rumble in the jungle, right? Uh, so here's like two of my favorite theologians apparently disagreeing over something that to me actually sounded quite right. I, I in my mind, said, yeah, that sounds, uh, of course, that's, that's fantastic. The most important thing the church does, uh, of course, would be evangelism. And uh, it says in the little side note, Voss disagreed. And then underneath that, it said, uh, Voss said that worship is the most important thing that the church does. And Dr. Voss is right. Now, I'd like those two ideas, worship and evangelism, to really frame what we do uh, all this week. Uh, because I hope you would agree with me uh, that actually, uh, that, that Voss is right. The very most important thing that the church does is worship. You know what you're going to be doing uh, for all eternity in heaven? Worship. What, what is the highest and best thing that we do in this life, right? It's when we gather together as a church with our family, with our church family on the Lord's Day, and we set aside all the worldly junk, uh, even the good things of the world, and we focus on the very best things that God has given us, which is the privilege of heaven itself, the life of the world to come. And as we gather together for worship, uh, we get to taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, we get to do, uh, my, one of my favorite theologians actually is my wife, who has a nice little way of saying it, that when we get together for worship, it's like our heads are popped up over the clouds into heaven. And there you get a taste, you get just a little foretaste of what heaven is going to be like with God's people and God's presence apart from sin, right? Uh, so that's the most important thing. That's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. But right now, we do something in this world, uh, which is, I'm going to argue, the second most important thing the church does. And if you agree with me by the end of this week, that should stretch you beyond your comfort zone a little bit, which I'm very happy to do. Uh, so if worship is the very most important thing that the church does, what's the second most? I like long pauses. Gives me time to drink. Let me see how nervous you look. Right? The second most important thing that the church does is evangelism. And you know why? Because evangelism is the means by which God gathers his worshipers. It's the way he gathers people from out of a lost, broken, and bruised world, and he brings them into his kingdom, into the covenant, uh, into fellowship with Christ, and with people like you and people like me and churches like ours, evangelism really is number two, worship is number one. And if you believe that, then by the time we leave this week, we should be really excited, not only excited, uh, but enabled to do the second most important thing that the church does, uh, which is worship. Now, what I'm going to do in the first couple sessions that we have together, and in fact, I'll do this in several of them, but it's, it's kind of front-loaded pretty, pretty heavily at the beginning, is to talk about uh, the way in which, even in the Old Testament, you see an awful lot of expressions of the Great Commission. So sometimes we make the mistake of saying that the Gospel is simply something that we get in the New Testament, right? When the letters turn red and Jesus finally comes on the scene, you know, then we get Gospel, and, and before that, uh, you just kind of get, you know, just, just simply stories or you know, commands, things like that, but not a lot of gospel. What I'd like to suggest is that's, that's probably not the best way to think about the Old Testament, and particularly even the Great Commission. The Great Commission uh, 
in a certain punctuated sense, comes in Matthew, and particularly towards the end in 28. But you get previews, you get foretastes, you get uh, little appetizers, if you will, of the Great Commission all over the Bible. This idea that God is going to draw uh, people from the nations into the family of God. And that they will come and that they will rejoice in the redemptive work of God and they will commune with the people of God and they will rejoice and bless the name of God. And here in Exodus 18, you actually see uh, one of these uh, very beautiful uh, portraits of the Great Commission in the Old Testament. Now, I, I like Exodus 18 for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is, uh, is frankly, just I, I'm a sappy dad. You'll, you'll see that when you see me with my son. Uh, I'm a very sappy dad. My 11-year-old daughter, by the way, I should mention this, she's not here. And uh, my wife and I were literally like teary-eyed today when we just like, we just miss our daughter. She's 11. She's beautiful. She's perfect. When she walks, she bounces across the clouds. When she sings, birds just kind of descend and chirp happily behind her. Everything she says is just like music to my ears. And I'm not the least bit uh, wrapped around her little finger. All right, so maybe that's not entirely true. Maybe I'm just a complete mess and I just am head over heels for my daughter. Okay, so we have this very same week. One of the reasons why I'd like to think it's taken a while for me to come out here, not because they didn't invite me, um, not that I'm kind of kicking things under the table about that, uh, but really every year our presbytery has a reformed youth camp at the exact same time that you do this camp. So I have uh, what was the problem uh, of not being able to be in two places at once. I have the same problem, and last year my daughter went to reformed youth camp and uh, this year, she just became a walking billboard for it uh, to the point that I think we had like six kids from our church last year. We had 15 this year. And, and Kira has just corralled them. She's 11. And she's like, Dad, I just, I got to be there. I got to show the new kids around. I, I gotta, how are you going to argue with that? By the way, I'm wrapped around her little finger. So she just kind of pushed me over like that. But in a week, I'll go home. <clears throat> and what do you think I'm looking forward to the most when I go home? We'll see my daughter, right? Uh, one of the most fantastic things I get to enjoy right now uh, is when I come home. Our two-year-old has just begun to walk. Uh, he's a tiny little tank. You'll see him uh, because tomorrow he'll try to plow through half of you with a smile. And he's, he's just a little blonde, blue-eyed, just, just, just tank of a guy. And uh, he's just started walking the last little while, and he's talking. And when he says my name, it comes out like this, Daddy. Now, if you really just want to make me really just, you know, kind of coo on the inside, that's it. And when I come home from work, there's like this firework of explosion, right? Daddy's home. And you know the drill. It's one of the most beautiful sights uh, in the whole world. Every dad treasures this stuff, right? Uh, that sound, when the kids hear the door open, and we've got, we've got uh, two dogs, and they, they start to do their little barking routine, and Carl, the big you know, stallion, and, and Liam, the little pony, just come bolting towards the door. And I, I walk in, and just about the time I get through the door, I don't even have my stuff out. I'm almost tackled by these two. And then comes Kira, you know, bouncing across the clouds and sweeps me up to heaven for just a few seconds and sets me down gently because that's how she does it. <clears throat> well, something similar to that is happening here in Exodus 18. Uh, for quite a season, Moses has been separated from his wife and children, and that season is the season of the plagues. 
That season is in many respects the adult uh, ministry of Moses from the time uh, he leaves Zipporah and the boys uh, in early chapters of Exodus uh, to Exodus 18. You have this big stretch where Moses has been apart from his family. He's like a man who's gone to war. And this scene in Exodus 18 is Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes out in the wilderness to where Israel is encamped and Moses is there, and he brings Moses' wife and Moses' kids. Now, as a dad, as a husband, this is a fantastically emotional and beautiful scene. But with all the familial, that is, family, emotion, and beauty that's there, uh, there's, there's an even higher level of beauty going on here, because Exodus, repre- Exodus 18 represents the idea that God has conquered his enemies, and Israel has enough rest from the Egyptians, that Jethro, the protective father-in-law, is now able to bring out Zipporah and the kids. In other words, the war is over. And I want you to stop and think about what you know about the plagues, the ten plagues there uh, in Egypt. Uh, What is really remarkable about the plagues is that every single plague represents Israel's God, the Lord, Jehovah, declaring war on the gods of Egypt. And every plague that happens to the Egyptians is like God taking one of the gods, small g, of the Egyptians and toppling them over like little chess pieces that he doesn't simply like outmaneuver and defeat. He just, he just flicks them out of the way. He just topples them one at a time. The Egyptians had a very complicated way of thinking about the world and themselves. They believed uh, that on the one hand, uh, there were all kinds of gods, and those gods ought to be worshipped and trusted. And at the same time, uh, they believed that they themselves were gods. Pharaoh thought of himself as a god. So every one of the plagues that you see is kind of like imagining uh, God as a warrior showing up to come and to conquer Egypt. And as he gets close to Egypt, on the outside are the the perimeter guards. And God first topples down the perimeter guards. The plagues kind of ascend in importance of the gods of Egypt. And every uh, opposition that the Lord of Israel encounters, he topples, he knocks them down, uh, he defeats them handsomely, easily, and convincingly. And every time he does that, he gets a little bit closer to Pharaoh. And every time he does that, Israel gets a little bit closer to being free. So by the time you go from the outside plagues at the Nile all the way uh, to the inside, to the heart of Egypt, you now have God knocking on Pharaoh's door. And as I said, Pharaoh thinks that literally he himself is a god. He has gods, but in a certain sense, he is a god. And when God finally comes and does battle with Pharaoh and the the final plague, the firstborn plague, the one that ends uh, the whole deal and makes Pharaoh bend the knee, it's in that context that the Lord shows very convincingly he alone is God. Every so-called God, small g, that the Egyptians have set up and trusted in and hid behind, the God of Israel has just toppled down like a sandcastle. Just one after another. Just, just washed them away. Some of them quite literally. And the last God, of course, is Pharaoh himself. As he strikes down the firstborn of Pharaoh, and then later, and when they come to the sea, 
of the armies of the Egyptians as well. So it's in this context that you see this beautiful family reunion. God has toppled the gods of Egypt. Pharaoh and his army have not only been defeated, uh, but the army is cast into the sea. And then on the other side of the sea, as 1 Corinthians 10 calls it, uh, this baptismal event, on the other side of the sea, they are resting. And in that context of rest, here comes Jethro and Zipporah and the boys. Now I want you to look at some of the things that Jethro says. I'm just going to focus on uh, four things uh, that, that Pharaoh says, excuse me, that Jethro uh, says or does. Now, I think the things that are said here or done here are really beautiful. So Jethro comes, you see it there in uh, verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro, this is the first verb, rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So the first thing uh, that Jethro does is he rejoices in all that God had done for the people of God. Now you have to stop and remember, uh, who is this guy Jethro, right? Jethro is a Gentile. Jethro is a Midianite. Jethro is a priest. He's a pagan priest. He's about as outside the covenant as they come. He is, to use the Old Testament phrase, uh, lo ami, not my people, not God's people. He is truly outside the covenant. In a certain sense, he's, he's kind of like one of the Egyptians. But he's been spared, and not only spared, he comes to hear of what the Lord has done. And when he hears, he rejoices in what God has done. I think this is something to start to get excited about. Here comes this Gentile Midianite priest, right? A pagan priest. This is like a witch doctor. When was the last time you heard of a witch doctor getting saved? That'd be a cool story, right? You ever seen a witch doctor? I've... I've been to Haiti. I've seen witch doctors. They look like Mark. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. <clears throat> He'll probably hurt me before this week is over, but if I turn up missing, you know where to start looking. <clears throat> so here comes this pagan Midianite priest, virtual uh, witch doctor, who hears what God has done, and he begins to rejoice. But if he simply rejoiced, that, that wouldn't be too bad, but it also wouldn't be too much. You can get excited about somebody else having, you, know, you, you got a new job? That's great. I'm excited for you. You got a new car? That's fantastic. You got married? Congratulations. Uh, you can rejoice in a way that's maybe even a little bit superficial, but there's actually something even deeper going on here. Uh, he doesn't simply Rejoice. Notice then he also goes on to make a confession in verse 10. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord. Now I want you to notice, if you're looking at your Bibles, because you are now, Blessed be the Lord is capitalized. This is the covenant name of God. This is the covenant name of Yahweh. He doesn't just say, uh, Blessed be God. He's not uh, here just linking the God of Israel alongside the other gods around in the land. You remember this if you've done some Old Testament Bible studies, of course, that uh, it was fairly common back then to think that pretty much every place had its own God. 
You go on a long trip, you probably need something to sacrifice to a handful of different gods because if you're in this state, let's call it, there's a god there. <clears throat> if you get out there on the sea, you've got to sacrifice to that god. If you go up a hill, there's a hill god. If you go down into the river, there's a river god. This is the way the Egyptians thought about it. Uh, this is just the way people in the ancient Near East thought about gods. There are gods everywhere. There are all kinds of gods. Uh, but that's not what Jethro is saying. He is saying, Blessed be the Lord, calling him by the covenant name by which God made covenant with Israel. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. But then he goes on even further. He doesn't just bless the name of the Lord. That's starting to sound uh, pretty good. Uh, maybe fairly conversion-esque, if you will. But verse 11, I think, is really just remarkable. Now I know that the Lord is what? Greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. <clears throat> Jethro says, now I know that your God is greater than all gods. He's on the top of the hill. He is the God of gods, New Testament way, right? King of kings, Lord of lords, God of the gods. He's just the true, the one God. It sounds uh, an awful like, like Exodus uh, 15.11. Uh, when I was a very young man, 150 years ago, I did an internship uh, with a very young pastor. Uh, and neither the young man nor his once young pastor are young anymore. And I remember watching this gentleman uh, preach, and so often there was behind him on this red tapestry this quote that read uh, a little bit like this. Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders. If you're wondering who I was just referring to and picking on a little bit, it's, it's actually Mark. But not that one, that one. I interned at Harvest uh, many, 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 many moons ago. So many moons ago, we were talking about playing basketball just a little while ago, which, you know, when I was back there in uh, 2000 B.C., uh, we had a basketball team for Harvest, and uh, Mark and I talked about playing basketball this evening, and the conversation immediately went to, like, twisted ankles and injured backs, and that's how you know when it's been a while. So Exodus 15:11 is the confession of Moses. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? Doesn't that sound a lot like what Jethro is saying? Blessed be the Lord, greater than all gods. Here you have uh, this witchcraft performing Midianite priest saying that the God of Israel is greater than all gods, blessing His name, rejoicing in what He has done on behalf of the people of God, even as Moses has done as well. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. There's one last thing that Jethro does that I think is pretty significant, which is the end of the section of verse 12. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So what does Jethro finally do? He comes having heard. 
what the Lord had done. You know what that means? This is going to be really deep and profound. Somebody told him. Okay, it wasn't that profound. It wasn't really even that deep. Somebody told Jethro God did something. In, in a very primitive sense, that's evangelism. God came and saved his people. And Jethro heard about this. And he rejoiced. And he blessed the God of Israel by his name. And then he confesses, who is like you? Right? Uh, the God of Israel, greater than all gods, Lord of lords, if you will. And then finally, uh, he offers sacrifice. He comes and he worships. It's a little while ago we said that the second most important thing that the church does is evangelism. And the most important thing uh, that we ought to be doing is worship. In a very certain sense, you have both here, right? Somebody has told Jethro the good news of what God has done. Jethro has heard and believed, as far as he can tell, uh, in the grace and providence of God. And here he comes rejoicing, blessing, confessing, and even offering worship according to apparently the way uh, God intended to be worshiped. This is fantastic. This is an Old Testament Old Testament version of something like you'd see in the book of Acts, where here comes this Gentile guy, right, uh, out of nowhere, uh, who's a Midianite priest. And all of a sudden now, uh, he's performing acts of worship and service toward the Lord and making a, a very uh, sweet and sobering confession. And finally, what do they do after they worship or after Jethro offers a sacrifice. Uh, he eats with the elders of Israel. Now, a few commentaries play with this and wonder if this is almost like, you know, uh, kind of like a liturgical meal of sorts in this sense. It's in the context of worship and Jethro's uh, confession. It's probably going a bit too far. But you do know this, that generally speaking in the Bible where you see people eating together, it's a sign of being welcome, safe, and at home, Right? Uh, what, what was the very first thing, at least I did when I got here? Eat. What are you supposed to do, right? When you get to somebody, like a family member's house, what do you do? You eat. You ever go to grandma's house and, and not eat? It's illegal in like all states but two. And those two states are seceding. You eat. And here they are, eating and fellowship with one another. What do you think they're talking about? They're talking about uh, the great things uh, that God has done. And the marvel of marvels is here you have uh, Jethro, a witchcraft-doing Midianite priest, sitting down at a meal with Moses, Aaron, and the elders of Israel. And what are they talking about but the great things that God has done? I, I love this. For me, uh, this says in the Old Testament, there's a preview of hope. The gospel is not only there in the redemptive work of God, the gospel is also there in the converting work of God. The converting work of God is on display in the whole Bible. And that's going to be one of the things uh, that we look at. And here you see it with Jethro, a Midianite priest. Now, uh, I, I would just, you don't have to raise your hand for this one in all seriousness. But my guess is uh, most of you here don't have Jewish backgrounds. 
there, there might be a couple. We have a handful of, of, of folks in our church that are converted uh, out of a Jewish background. But I, I point this out just to say, you know, it's nice to see some Gentiles coming into the picture uh, since most of us here are, by nature, Gentiles. In the New Testament, uh, this is a really big deal that the people of God are not restricted to just one nation, but that God has a great and glorious plan for all the nations, right? Uh, that Philippians 2, every knee is going to bow. Uh, all the nations are going to not only hear of the gospel and the glory of God, uh, people are going to come streaming from all the nations to the mountain, to the hill of God, even as you see here in Exodus 18. What does Isaiah say in that great day? People from every nation and tribe are going to come and they're going to worship God in His holy mount. And here you have a preview of God doing exactly that. God bringing someone from out of the darkness into the light. It's a preview, not simply of the Great Commission in a certain sense. It's also a preview, beloved, of how folks like you and me come into the kingdom of God. Some of us come in uh, rather crazy, strange roads. And some of us come in uh, rather simple roads. I'm going to tell uh, just a, a very brief version of how I came to Christ. I'm going to tie it around uh, to you. So you can get to know a little bit about your speaker since you have to listen to me for five more days. Unless, of course, you skip a session, but I will find you. These Birkenstocks move really fast. These are my speed Birkenstocks. They've got a strap on the back. This past uh, weekend, we had the privilege of interviewing a family for membership. We have a full-time intern. has got three uh, teenage kids, and we interviewed them, and it was so wonderful to hear them say, which I'm going to guess uh, a lot of you here can say, the kids in particular. Uh, they, they just really don't, you know, they don't really have a lot of a story. Like, they don't, they don't remember not being Christians. They don't remember not... Uh, going to church. They've probably been coming to family camp. Somebody told me this thing's been going for 50 years. I don't know if that was exaggeration or not. Uh, I guess I'll find out in a little while. Uh, how many years? I should ask. How many years has this thing been going? You know, if anybody but you had said it, I'd question it for at least well, longer than this. But I, I believe you. 1941. Wow, has anyone here come to camp every year that they've been alive? No, there really should be a prize. If, you, if, you've been, if you've been every year that you've been alive, there must be some prize. All right. That's really amazing. I'm going to have to think about that for a little bit. Okay, where was I at? I was somewhere. So many of us have the story, this is not my story, of just growing up in the arms of the church, like the little babies around here kind of being tossed around, right? Uh, you just you grew up in the arms of the church, and about the same time you learned to say your name, you learned to sing Jesus' name, right? And Jesus loves me, and this I know for the Bible tells me so. Uh, well, my story is a little bit more like Jethro's. I did not grow up with church. Uh, my parents did not go to church when I was a kid. Uh, in fact, my dad was a devout uh, atheist, and when he was a career Marine, and when I was 12 years old, he rather abruptly left my family and my mom uh, with four kids to finish raising. Uh, that same year, I began doing drugs and all manner of stupidity to follow. I have a brother who's two years younger, so I was 12, he was 10. Uh, 
we both began doing Dumb and Dumber at about that age and did it for a good uh, little while. And I don't say that in any boastful sense. I look back to this with sadness and shame. At a lot of my younger years, they, they weren't pretty. In fact, uh, they were really dark. They were so dark uh, in that context of doing drugs for a number of years. Got to the point where I was selling drugs. Uh, I went to jail uh, for breaking and entering and got arrested at 16. One of the most terrifying things in my life is sitting in, in a courtroom with a couple of buddies who I just thought these guys were the scum of the earth. But there I am right beside them uh, getting ready to walk through the same doors. Uh, by the time I graduated high school, I'd been shot at twice. I've been shot at uh, once. Actually, I drove through. We had to come in through Riverside. I was shot at in Riverside. I got in a gang fight, a bunch of stupid trouble, ended up in the wrong place, literally got shot, had to run weaving from somebody holding a gun, shooting repeatedly at me. That was the first time. Second time was in North Carolina, which is actually where I grew up. Uh, again, uh, gang fight, stupidity, and was shot at, and uh, the bullet missed me and hit the guy right there. Bullet went in his back. So when I say I did stupid and dumb, I'm, I'm being very serious. Uh, so then I ended up failing my senior year of high school. If you go to a public school, there's probably no worse fate than to have to repeat your senior year of high school with the people you did not grow up with, right? The ones a year back. Okay, so I, I went through that. I uh, went back and graduated because my little brother had quit school by this time, and I thought my mom should see one of her boys graduate and I didn't have anything else to do. So I graduated high school, moved to the beach. That was a good choice. I like the beach. Moved to the beach, was beach lifeguarding, delivering pizza, doing drugs, being a bonehead. After about a handful of months of that, decided, okay, I can't do this forever. So I got into community college, began, uh, <clears throat> I began a degree, now you've got to listen to this carefully, uh, therapeutic recreation. If you want to know why I'm so fun, it's because I went to school to learn how to be fun. <laughs> that makes me officially the most fun OPC pastor, I think, because I actually have a recreation degree. <laughs> All right. I know. So little of this is actually in my notes. <laughs> so about a year into that, I decided to quit college and uh, do something pretty, pretty ridiculous. I went and I followed the Grateful Dead around the country for a year, grew dreadlocks down to here, made Mark look pretty clean-shaved, <clears throat> didn't bathe, slept wherever, with whomever, all kinds of stupidity. After a year of that, decided, you know what, this is actually going absolutely nowhere, and uh, decided to come back to North Carolina, and as I was getting on a Greyhound bus in San Francisco, somebody gave me a Bible, a little Bible like this. I put my backpack. And after a couple days of just playing guitar and stinking, I stunk worse and could not play my guitar anymore. My fingers were done, so I had this backpack, and I pulled out a Bible. And in that Bible, uh, my little brother's name is Mark. Uh, so I was a little jealous. You know, he's got a book of the Bible named after him, but it's okay. So I began reading in the Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Mark, uh, I think, is actually where I became converted. Pagan, pot-smoking, drug-selling, stinking hippie. And I kind of say it like this way in summary form for myself. I got on that bus, a long-haired, stinking deadhead, and I got off the bus... Longer-haired, surely stinkier, but probably saved. Witchcraft doing Midianite. Lost pagan deadhead from coastal North Carolina. Who can't God save? 
Who can't? I know it's bad grammar. Who can't God save? Is there anyone He can't reach? That began just a long and beautiful, sometimes bumpy relationship with the Lord, with the church, that 25 years later has me here standing in front of you talking about telling people like me about the Savior. Because people like me need to hear about the Savior. And people like Jethro needed to hear about the mighty deeds of the God of Israel who saved the people for Himself so that they might come rejoicing, blessing, confessing, and finally worshiping. Uh, But I want to come back to you covenant kids. I want to set this theme early. I'll I'll turn back to this uh, towards the end of the week. I'd like to hear how you process this during the week. We'll have time to talk about this as we attempt to bodily harm one another on various basketball and volleyball courts and then encourage one another in Bible studies and fellowship later. I intend to do some of both. But I bet as I tell a little story of how I came to Christ, sometimes I've discovered that when I get an opportunity to tell this story, uh, there, there are kids like you, people like you, whose eyes I'm looking into, who don't have stories like that. You didn't go to hell to find your way to heaven. You didn't have to go out and get stupid lost to finally get really found. You haven't been to jail or shot at. You haven't failed your senior year of high school. You might even be homeschooled by Christian parents using great stuff or however, however you're doing it. Uh, but, but make sure I've got your attention here. This is important to me, Okay. Don't think for a moment, for a moment, that if you don't have a story of hell and back like mine or a crazy witchcraft priest from Midian, that you don't have a fantastic story to share. In fact, you have the even better story to share. Because what's more grand, that God would rescue a Midianite or a deadhead that's come to the end of himself in the bottom of a gutter, or that he would keep someone like you in the covenant. Which is a more beautiful story? I'll say them just a little bit differently. I I began uh, by talking about my three children whom I love. My two-year-old over there who's probably got my wife in a headlock at the moment. Um, Or my 10-year-old over here who would love to put me in a headlock as I'm talking about him. Or my 11-year-old who's at home, and I mentioned bounces across the clouds and is probably playing a harp somewhere now in the middle of central Florida. She doesn't play the harp. I just say stuff like that. What story do you think I want for them? Do you think I want them on drugs at a young age? In jail? Shot at? Wake that story at all. Yours is a far more beautiful story, a more precious and cherishable treasure. So don't think you've got to have all kinds of crazy in the rearview mirror to be thankful for the gospel. You don't have to be a Midianite priest or a former deadhead. You just have to know that you're a sinner saved by grace and that the great deeds that God has done, He did for you because of His love for you so that you can Rejoice, bless His name, confess His goodness, worship Him. And as we're going to talk about this week, 
not only learn to do evangelism, but really love it. Because after all, just like Moses said, and Jethro, in his own way, would echo, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders? The fact that you're here is a glorious deed that the Lord has done. You believe that? We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the other good things that the Lord will do, not only in you, but through you. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that in eternity past, you set your seal upon a people who in time you would redeem through the precious blood of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in history past you displayed your awesome deeds as you subdued your enemies, the Egyptians, and rescued your people, the Israelites, bringing them out of the land of bondage and darkness into a land of light and liberty. We thank you that what they experience is a preview of what we would have in Christ, that you've brought us out of darkness and into the light of your Son. We thank you that in Him is no darkness at all. We thank you that in Him we've become beloved and adopted sons and daughters. And so, Lord, we ask, even now, that as we begin to set our hearts to you this week upon the theme of evangelism, we ask, O oh Lord, that you'd help us to begin where we, where we ought to begin, with a grand desire to worship you because of who you are and all that you have done for us. And I pray, O oh Lord, for the way that you will work in our hearts. I pray, O oh Lord, that you will cause those uh, who have grown up in the covenant and never really understood or walked uh, very far away from you, that they would understand, O oh Lord, uh, what a beautiful privilege it is to be raised in the arms of a Christian family and a loving church. Pray, Lord, for those that might be tempted to wander from you. Uh, those who are here, perhaps even against their own will or simply through the invitation of a friend and might learn things this week that are utterly new. And we pray, oh Lord, that you would cause the gospel to pierce our hearts, that we would leave this place this week changed, more in love with you, truly in love with you, desiring, just like that Midianite witch doctor, to bless your name, to rejoice in your goodness, to confess your might, and to worship you. Now give us a good night's rest, and please wake us tomorrow, O Lord, to look upon your face in the light and glory of Christ Jesus, and to thank you for all that you've done for us in him. Amen.